So I want to talk to you about something that is true for you like it is for me, okay? Everybody has a seat that they like to sit in, right? Is that true of you? Okay, and, and um, there's probably a lot of seats. Some of these seats are at uh, home. You might have that leather recliner. Maybe yours is uh, powered, you know, um, uh, a Binford one from Home Home Improvement. Maybe it powers you fast, right? You know that kind. Of, you might have some kind of seat at work. It's your chair, we would say. Um, you might have a seat that is kind of your seat in a car or a vehicle, right? Um, maybe even you could say in a relationship. So these seats come and they and they go by different names. They are. Uh, first chair. If this was a orchestra, there would be a violinist or uh, that that would sit here, and they would be in that first violin seat, and they uh, do a big job, and no one else gets to sit there because that's their job and their seat. There's the driver's seat I mentioned in a vehicle, and then there's the captain's chair. If this was a movie set, the 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 uh, there there might be a director's seat. And he or she watches the, the scene unfold and says action or cut or whatever. And that seat has a special um, designation. Um, when I drive my truck, the man behind the wheel is me. That's right, it's me. And, um, and in fact, um, no one asks if they can take my seat in my three-quarter ton Silverado Duramax diesel Allison transmission truck. No, no no one asks to, now, uh, and they don't for a reason. Um, it's, it's my seat, right? And it would be silly to ask, okay? Uh, so occasionally, I offer that seat to somebody. Oh, okay. Um, rarely, uh, rarely. All right, all right. Almost never. Okay, okay. That's. Uh, so here's the deal. When I first heard a song, I think it was about ten years ago, from a recording artist, Carrie Underwood. Um, I was really hooked on the song. I thought that's a cool sounding song, and it's a. I, I'm drawn to songs that you would say are um, a story songs. And the song I'm thinking of is Jesus Take the Wheel, right? And you remember that song. And, um, and, and it was a really cool song, and it struck me in a lot of ways, but two ways right away. The first was that song's describing something that's hard to do, okay? So um, it, it's, it's, remember I said it's my wheel that I hold on to, and, it, and I belong in that seat. That was, that was a thought. And then here's another one. It's, it's even harder to say. It's what we must all do. Um, if we're serious about Jesus having first place in our lives. So here's why I say um, we must let Jesus take the wheel as Carrie Underwood's song would suggest. Uh, there are uh, words in Colossians. If you're still trying to sort it out about Jesus, 
I would tell you go to John's gospel, John chapter 1, 2, 5, 10, and 20. Those, are the, those correspond with all the bills that you carry around in your wallet or purse. 1, 2, 5, 10, and 20. Every one of those chapters, it's very emphatically um, stated boldly that Jesus is God. He is someone you can come to for all that you're looking for. Okay? So I would encourage you to do that, but I would also encourage you to go to Colossians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but let me just tell you, it's a section uh, written to a group of people in Colossae, the city of Colossae, which actually Paul had never gone to, but he wrote these people because they were, it was a syncretistic church, meaning there was a little mix of uh, this religion and that religion, and let's just, like a mixing bowl, put it all together. Syncretism, right? Well, Paul said that's not correct. There is one true Jesus, and he said this from verses 15 to like 24 in chapter 1 of Colossians. These words are just a few that you'll find there. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, said the apostle, the firstborn over all creation. Take that one in. Here's a man he's describing who's the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, things that are visible and things you can't see. They're invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Then listen, listen closely now. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now watch for it. He is the head of the body, the church, so it brings it a little closer to us in this gathering that are part of Grace Point in this room and online. He is the, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, and then there's a little statement in there in Greek. I'll translate it in English. It's called a purpose statement, meaning everything I have just read, everything the apostle just wrote is for this purpose, so that Jesus might have first place in everything. So it's not enough to say, you know, yeah, I get I get it. Je yeah, I go. Jesus is God. I I. I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with all the things he did. But you miss the point entirely, and I have done so in my own life. If I don't take it to the most devotional, personal level of all, which is so that Jesus, that was just described, might have first place in you, Steve, in every way. See how it gets personal? So let's make those words even more personal. Let me ask you this morning, what or who has first place in your life? Told you to get personal. Some possibilities, of course. I'm just going to take a stab, self. There are some people that would say, that's my seat, like you described your truck. Some might say a step further, uh, that's my spouse. She or he has first place in my life. Um, if you have children, if you've been blessed with children, they might find uh, their name in that sentence, who has first place. You sure give them a lot. 
you sacrifice a ton for them? I mean, it would suggest by just watching you live around your kids, they're a big deal. But let's go out further. How about work? That's noisy, isn't it? Um, but refreshing. So we'll take work. There's a saying today, uh, work to live, don't live to work. And I'm not convinced that that covers it very well. Because you have to really be into your job if you're going to be good at it. So some are going to say, well, it's one of the first place things. I'm still reaching further. Hobbies. Some of you hunt, some of you fish, some of you boat, some of you, I don't know, um, you're into it, and it's a deal that's on your mind all the time. Maybe it's a hobby for you. Sports. If you had looked in my family room last night, we stumbled onto the most beautiful thing this side of heaven, a Raider game. <laughs> Just a joke, you guys. So, uh but it was a preseason game, and we beat the local team, I might add, here in the Northwest. <laughs> the boys up, they needed more than 12, let me just tell you. We beat them. So anyway, um, sports is a big deal for some people. You knew I'd bring up Jesus. That's where I started. So if you say Jesus, today you're going, that's me, that's where I'm at, Pastor. When did he become your answer. I hope you'll talk about that with somebody today. Maybe over lunch, wherever. Talk about when Jesus was your answer. He is, in fact, first place in me. That would be a great conversation to have. Now, um, a little more difficult answer. If Jesus is that one you said, um, to what degree is that still true today? And if it isn't, why not? Why isn't it? Um, so today in this voice uh, from the past message from Haggai, one of the prophets of old, um, a voice from the past, the ancient prophets with a modern message. Um, he's going to help us answer, settle really who sits in the first place seat in all of our lives. Uh, so while you're on your way to uh, Haggai, I want you to, uh, for just a second this morning, I want to kind of draw us into where we were just recently. Last week we were with Zephaniah. He was uh, a prophet um, who warned Judah that there's trouble coming. There's a storm approaching rapidly and nothing in its way to stop that storm. He appealed to the people and said, uh, that, that storm's coming in the form of Babylon, the superpower um, and of, of the ancient world. And his cry was loud and clear, take cover now. Um, if you were here last week, you'll recall sadly that the people largely ignored what his, his, his alarming cry was. Uh, not only that, but they absolutely ignored the destructive results that had happened to their neighbor to the north about a hundred years earlier. They, they thought um, foolishly, that's not going to happen here. Be like America today saying, you know, that, they can't, that can't happen here. 
It's happened in other great empires, but that ain't going to happen here. Not sure that's a wise approach. It certainly wasn't for them because Nebuchadnezzar um, was the one that came a short time later. And he, his forces were overwhelming as predicted. That storm was a Category 5, like a hurricane developing in the Gulf. And it came strong and hard, and it resulted in devastating Jerusalem and burning its centerpiece to the ground, the temple. The glorious temple that had stood since the days of, um, of Solomon. Hard for us to take in just how sad and, and awful that would be. But that's the backstory here. So here, you ready for a shock? Because Nebuchadnezzar did that. Babylon was the country he came from in the east, about 700 miles. He came there and did exactly what the prophet said is going to happen. But here's the deal. Uh, almost as big a shock because the world thought that guy is invincible. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, they're not going away anytime soon. Fifty years later, they were crushed. Babylon was crushed. They were taken down by a king up in the north named Cyrus, a Persian king. And he became, yes, the new superpower of the ancient Near East world. So, um, there is a fun little sidebar that this whole story builds on. This Cyrus that came with such size and strength that he was able to take out Babylon, he's the one that came with a policy, a foreign policy that was friendly to, let's call them prisoners. They're the exiles, the ones that were deported when Babylon came and conquered. He says his policy is going to be different. And here's how it's going to look. You get to go back, all you people, to the country you came from. They were shocked. They thought they were going to die in these faraway places. And God had a wonderfully different plan. So Cyrus, the king, who announces this, says to Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Judah back in Israel, and to Joshua, or Yeshua, who is the high priest from Jerusalem and the temple, those two are going to lead this first massive return of God's people, 50,000 in number. They're going to get to go, and it's the first of three waves that, that go home. I got to tell you, if, you were, if we were a group that were part of that returning bunch, 50,000 of them strong, we would have, it's difficult to describe the excitement. It would have been giddy and, I mean, just like, home again, home again, jiggity jig. I mean, you would have been just like, wow, we get to go home. This is great. Freedom. You know, we would have been all over the page with excitement. And that's, that's deserved excitement. Um, so upon arriving in Jerusalem, a spillover is the temple effort that began almost immediately to build the altar where, on the same site where the burned-out temple of Solomon used to stand. So they come back in big numbers, and they jump in 
and say, we're going to put together, we're going to start with the altar because that's where we make sacrifices to God. And they did it with great fervor. And then according to Ezra, and may I stop myself and just tell you this, because some of you are intrigued by all these details, but it's hard to follow them all. Go to Ezra when you read the Bible and look at the chapters, mostly first four chapters, but it goes beyond that. And you will see a bunch of other detail that explains what I'm about to tell you. These people came. They're excited. They get busy on this altar. And then Ezra describes um, that this, this construction of the replacement temple had begun, but it quickly evaporated. Their enthusiasm left them. And that's told in those chapters I mentioned. They ran into a huge headwind. And it's one that more than a few of us have run into in our lives. And that's what Haggai is all about. I'll just fast forward and tell you uh, the job site went silent. There was a, 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 a cyclone fence, if you will, around it that said, don't cross, stay out. And no one was there. They started, but they put away their tools and left the site. And it sat that way for 10 years, a decade. And hopefully you're intrigued to go, what happened? Uh, God sends two people to address what happened. They are Haggai, and next Sunday we'll talk about uh, Zechariah. They both, they were tag team. In fact, I'm going to call them this morning jumper cables. Okay? And they came to those people, and they, like jumper cables, clicked on and said, your battery's dead, and there were sparks flying, and they were there to start the engine. And they did so uh, powerfully. So let's look at just how it unfolded. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, so I'm reading chapter 1 here. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, I mentioned him already, he's the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not come to rebuild the Lord's house. Remember, they started with the altar, it said nothing of the house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You eat, you earn wages only to put them in your purses or pockets with holes in them. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much. But see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin. Well, while each of you is busy in your own place, in your own home, 
Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, on the wine, on the olive oil, on everything else that the ground produces, that's crops, and people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. What a statement, verse 11. Then Zerubbabel and the, the high priest uh, Joshua uh, stood before the whole remnant of the people, and they called out, Obey the voice of the Lord their God. And they, they, they carried this message forth like the spark I described of jumper cables. I'm with you, the Lord says. So the Lord stirred up the people, starting with Zerubbabel, then with Joshua, and then the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. So, how come the temple construction project had stopped for 10 years. Would you write this down? This is the answer that we just read. The people's priorities were messed up. They were messed up. Uh, verses 2 to 4 capture some of the details. They had strayed uh, from their priority. They had stayed away from the temple construction for a decade because... Frankly, it didn't fit their personal plans. It was inconvenient for them. There was an answer other than God on the question, their answer to the question, who's first place? Um, instead, the people put their time and they put their treasure and they put their talents uh, to something else that mattered more to them, verse 4 tells us. Just who had first place in their lives is a good question. It's really a good question. Um, the instinct, I'm going to tell you as a confession of the human heart, um, the instinct is to say, well, um, I guess I would say God is. Um, but it's an uncomfortable question for most of us. It was when I asked it earlier. Who's first place in you? And you kind of want to change the subject after a bit. At least I do. It's like, what are you getting at? And, and, and then there's a kind of a parallel temptation to say, well, you know, um, I just don't want to go deep. I don't want to give it deep, careful thought. But God insists that we do five times in this passage. We read three of them already. He says, take a look at your life. Take a careful look. The word take a look, and by the way, just to refresh your memory, it's in verse 5. Give careful thought to your ways. Verse 7, give careful thought to your ways. We didn't go this far, but look in chapter 12, or chapter 2, verse 15, and see this. Now give careful thought. And he repeats it two more times in verse 18. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day. And then he finishes verse 18. Give careful thought. In other words, take time. Stop what you're doing. 
and ponder a bit. Uh, We might say something like a deep dig today. Uh, It's a layered look. In other words, it's not just a, well, I'm, I'm good. No, it's, it's, a, it's a breakdown further than that. Look at your personal practices. So you and I would say today, how do we spend our time? That's a good thing. Uh, would, would, we, would we say, would we honestly say, well, I, I spend a lot of it watching TV? Or maybe for you, it's uh, listening to music a lot or, or gaming. I don't know. I, you know, it's hard to say. It's your phone in some fashion, I would suspect. Have you ever had one of those meters on your phone like an iPhone has that will actually reveal to you how much data, how many times you are on, you have your screen open on your phone? Anybody ever done that? Anybody stop doing that once you did it? That, that would be me. It was telling me numbers that just I wanted to turn off. thought, no. No, I don't, I don't want you to know those things. I don't care what, if anybody knows where I go, where I, where I look, I, a lot of it's camping. I dream about camping. There's my vice. But, uh, uh, but I, this thing's tracking that. So that's some of how I spent my time. Too much of it. Um, maybe for you it's something more positive than that. It's, it's Bible study. It's, it's worship. It's uh, prayer get-togethers or prayer time on your own. That's, that's on the time column. How, how about this? How do you spend your money? Most of us would honestly say, well, to live, right, Pastor? I mean, I, it takes a lot to live, and that's how I spend my money, to live. Well, that, that would be actually true. But I think if we had a peek at your bank statement, it's already quiet in here this morning, but it got really quiet right now. Look at your bank statement. And not just the numbers side, but how much time you actually spend in certain places or spending certain things. So that gives us a more complete, deeper dig. Uh, Give careful thought, not superficial, to your ways, we're being told. The people had to do it then. So this isn't just a modern problem that... Uh, a current pastor is trying to challenge a little bit in our lives. This was true then, long, long ago. Uh, the way we spend our time and our money matters, and, and it answers really the question, who has first place? It really does. Who sits in the seat? So I want to reveal something else that will be a relief to some of you this morning. Because if you've lived in uh, this life with any measure of frustration, you know that sometimes it's hard to pin down. So why am I stirred up? You know, have you ever had a loved one say to you, why are you so upset? What's eating you? Um, Might be another way uh, that it's asked. Well, um, these people, and I'm going to say today, boldly, more than a few of us, the evidence found in verses 6 and a little more in verse 9 is quite revealing. Look, look at this. 
again with me. Verse 6, you've planted much and harvested a boomer crop, right? Well, that's what I would expect. If you plant a lot, if you work your fanny off and put all that, sow all that seed in the soil, you hope it comes back in a big crop, right? But he's saying, no, it didn't. It actually, um, you harvested little. Or you sit down and you eat and, and you eat enough to fill you, but you don't, you don't feel like you had enough. You drink, same way, but you're still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you just can't take the chill off. You earn wages only to put them in a purse. What a relevant statement today. What a description of people that I have counseled over the years who have money woes on their mind. They say, you know, I've got nothing. Finish my sentence. I worked a lot, and I have nothing to show for it. That's frustration. Not enough is a frustration. That's what verse 6 is saying. Go down to verse 9. It kind of summarizes them all. You expected much, but it turned out to be little. So not enough is a frustrating way to live. In fact, I'm going to say it's not really living at all. It's kind of enduring. It's kind of existing or surviving. That's why those those, those, those different pictures of futility are mentioned here in verse 6. It's just not enough. Can't get warm. Can't get ahead. And it goes on and on like that. Um, this will be the first time ever in 40 years that I've quoted the Rolling Stones in a, in a message. Okay, so um, it's a caveat on the front end. But they made a fortune with a song. And, um, and you know the song, Satisfaction, right? But it has a larger title, actually. If you look it up, it'll say Satisfaction, and in parentheses, I can't get no, right? All you guys are singing it with me. I can't get no <laughs> satisfaction. <laughs> so, um, you know Mick Jagger used to be Mac Jagger? He's part of our family. No, I'm just kidding you. Like, uh, I'm messing with you, okay? So, uh, I can't get no satisfaction. And then, and then there's this line, and it repeats and repeats and repeats. And, and, it, and it does for you, too, when you share these words. And I try, and I try, and I try, and I try, and I can't get no satisfaction. Deep disappointment described these people. They tried and tried and tried, and it didn't work. Have you found that if disappointment, which is clearly what they're living like, if it, um, if it isn't somehow resolved, it gets worse. Do you notice that? Disappointment will not behave itself and sit in the front row quietly. Disappointment will turn into disillusionment. And disillusionment into despair. And despair into something we don't even want to talk about. But we know people that have gone there. That's the path they went. It started out with disappointment. I had these expectations, and it turned out this way. And I didn't get it solved and settled. 
it stayed and it and it calcified and it uh, migrated and it began to kind of take over my life um, you if you were to take time and ask Solomon um, I'll give you this assignment today since we're short on time read Ecclesiastes this week well you promise me if you read it don't open it if you're going to go straight to chapter 12. Don't do it. you got to go on his journey a little bit. I mean, sit in the back seat or shotgun. Let him sit there and take you on a journey. But when you get there, you'll see why chapter 12 matters so much. Because he says like 36 times, life is meaningless. This is a joke. This is like water that will not satisfy way it feels good right now that's solomon he's he's acknowledging that and he, then he goes further and he says it's not just my life it's everything i reach for in this life doesn't work for me and you're, you're about to say yeah but pastor some of that stuff worked how long it has a shelf life i'm serious it has a shelf life and i know it in my own life so, um, have you come to the same conclusion that Solomon came to? Um, nothing here was meant to satisfy. Not forever, it wasn't. It meant to get you by. You may, you may bristle at that. And here's why I believe that's true. Only Jesus Christ satisfies only um, so quit trying may I suggest to fit him in somewhere in your life and instead invite him in to everywhere you live um, I, I need to leave you with a principle this morning I only have time to mention it but it's really a very valuable principle and it explains the frustration, the disappointment, the disillusion, all that stuff. It, 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 ex, it explains uh, the, the difficulty of living with just um, this side of satisfaction, okay? It answers the question, why is this happening to me? And it's uh, captured for us in uh, like verses 9 to 11, but look, look at the second half of 9, and, and then I'll, I'll state the principle, okay? So it says... What you brought home, everybody get your eyes on this because I don't want you to miss this. Verse 9, second half. What you brought home, God speaking, I did what? I blew away. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, which you're too busy to deal with. You're focused on your stuff. I'm paraphrasing all that he says next. And then verse 11. He goes a step further. I blew it away, verse 9. Look at this. I called, verse 11, I called, I called for a drought on all of these important things that matter in our lives. That's from a God that loves us. We sang about that. This is a God that says, I really love you, but I actually called for a drought on the things that matter 
to you so much that they're in the seat that is only for me. So I called a drought. God is saying this. I called for that drought so that you'll, you'll, you'll see it. It doesn't work. The, the fields, the mountains, the grain, the wine, the olive oil. And then it finishes with words that you can't miss. I can't miss them. Everything else the ground produces, and then people and livestock, and the sentence ends, and on all you do. That's all the labor of your hands. That's a tough principle to hear. But God's for me. He's just going to fill my bank account. He's just going to bless me in every way, every day. Touche. You know, I just have to tell you, you might turn me off right now. Some of you might click off online. I hope you don't. Here's the principle. God is the designer of dysfunction. Would you write that down? And please call me if you disagree. God is the designer of dysfunction, based on these words, when people refuse to give him first place. That's the deal here, people. Don't trifle with God when it comes to that seat. You know, God's my co-pilot. No, he's not. He's not going to be okay there. How many of you have a parent like I had that uh, had a comment or two along the way about your driving? Anybody have that? You know, my dad said things like, like I was going around a pretty tight corner, right? And I was doing maybe double what the speed limit called for, but I was fully in control, right? And I went around the corner. My, dad, my dad's in the passenger side. Now he's sort of actually partly in my seat because we went, it was a right hand. And he's like, uh, I, you know, I, I think you took that a little fast. And he, here's the problem. Okay, see, uh, confession's good for the soul. In those days, you could unhook your speedometer. I only know Jim Wilson did that, Jim and me, because we did a lot of mischievous things. But I unhooked my speedometer, so when he was over on my lap going around this corner, he looks at the speedometer, and it's a zero. <laughs> and you're thinking, some of you who didn't even consider that, it's a way of not showing that you actually drove the miles. It was a really criminal thing to do and, and not good, so don't try this at home. But here's the deal. I had a dad that would say, you know something? He didn't sit there quietly and go, whoopee, <laughs> that was fun. He's like, bro, I don't want to drive with you. I don't like this seat. You're a lousy driver, and you're a cheat. He didn't say all that, but he could have. Steve, you're not doing this well. How much of that does God get to say to us? Because he won't sit, like my dad did not sit that day, listening, or uh, in silence, letting me do my thing. No. God is the one we're reading about here who is the designer of dysfunction. See, when you work hard, you're supposed to see fruit from it. When you plant you're supposed to see gain. You're supposed to see wine and olive oil. And your ground is supposed to produce by design. 
But the same God that says, I want that seat is saying, I will create different outcomes, dysfunctional outcomes, until you give it to me. Um, so I'm going to ask you at the end here, are you experiencing any kind of drought in your life today? I have two pieces of advice. If you haven't tried Jesus to finish the sentence, who sits in the seat, you need to. In fact, I, I, I plead with you to do so. Don't, don't. You can keep just doing what you're doing and you'll get what you got, but give him the seat. And if there's drought in your life, it probably means you need to pray this prayer. God, forgive me for doing it my way, for having other things that matter more on the throne of me. Remember those words in Colossians 1, verse 18? Jesus is all these wonderful things so that he might have first place in me. I'd like you to bow your heads this morning. And God, we come to you um, as people so many other takeaways. You're a great God. You, you are a God that forgives. I don't know a single story where somebody came to you having made a mess of their lives or even more subtly just didn't let you be the God of all of their lives. And the result of that wasn't a God that was mad and folded his arms and turned away. You welcomed them into your presence. And you clean them up. You said, you know, you're right. You haven't had your priorities straight. And God, that's what this story goes on to teach. We didn't have time to capture the fact in three weeks, the people had changed it up, realigned their priorities, and he was first place. Three weeks. God, I pray that three weeks would start today in the lives of people who have not let you be the Lord of everything. I pray that three weeks would start this moment. If you're behind the wheel right now, I want you to look up at me because I'm going to pray for you. Not by name. I'm not here to embarrass anybody. I'm just here to acknowledge you're taking a step toward fixing what's dysfunctional. I see a lot of you. So, Lord, you, you're hearing it. You know my prayer for myself. God, I want you, the one who is worthy of all, of all, to be behind the wheel, to actually, like that song we, we thought about, to, to take it from my hands as I release it to you because I can't do this on my own. I'm letting go, God. I'm saying... No, I'm not in charge. And when I start to grab the wheel, just gently say, no, I got it. I got this. So, so save me from this road I'm on, as the song would say. And Jesus, take the wheel. You are worthy. We give you praise. We want to be people, as this song captures 
that, that have you, the one who's worthy of all the praise. And may it show every moment of every day. In the name of Jesus.